You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Yeah, I mean, dig into the real history of this country and the fact that it was built on blood. You can't be neutral on a moving train, 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 train. And that was an excerpt of Writings on Disobedience and Democracy by Vinnie Paz. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral. This is a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral, and you can send me a message or uh, make a donation at the website YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. There you'll find some links to make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up, a couple pieces from MiddleEastMonitor.com. Israel tanks invade Gaza, open fire at farmers. A number of Israeli tanks today, this is from February 15, carried out an incursion in the east of the city of Jabalia, in the north of the Gaza Strip, and opened fire at Palestinian farmers. Palestinian security sources said. According to the sources, three bulldozers and three tanks breached the borders and trampled on agricultural land and farms inside Gaza. They destroyed land and building dirt mounds and opened fire and shot smoke canisters. Israel occupation drones were flying overhead during the incursion. On Sunday, six Israeli tanks invaded areas east of Bet Lahia and opened fire at Palestinian farmers apparently to force them to leave their farms as they raised several agricultural facilities. Palestinian farmers and fishermen suffer almost daily attacks at the hands of Israeli occupation forces. And this piece from January 28. The Israeli army yesterday destroyed a natural reserve and uprooted at least 10,000 trees in a military campaign in the northern West Bank in a move that Palestinians termed a crime. Moataz Bisharat, who is responsible for monitoring Israeli settlement activity in the Jordan Valley, told Andalou Agency that the occupation army pushed military vehicles and dozens of soldiers into the Ayanun area in Tubas City in the morning and destroyed a nature reserve built on an area of about 400 dunums, which is equivalent of about 98 acres. The occupation army, quote, chopped down and destroyed about 10,000 forest trees and about 300 olive trees, he said. Trees were planted in the nature reserve eight years ago as part of the Greening Palestine Project, supervised by the Palestinian Ministry of Agriculture and funded by the Venezuelan consulate in Palestine. Bisharat stressed that the occupation alleged that the destruction of the reserve came as it was classed as a military zone, even though it was not more than 300 meters away from residential areas, and it served as an outlet for residents. 
In a statement, the Palestinian Liberation Organization's Colonization and Wall Resistance Commission said Israel, quote, has formed a special unit whose mission is to wage war on the Jordan Valley. A security apparatus has been formed to oversee construction and agriculture in Area C, and it has undertaken to wipe out the Palestinian presence, the statement read. The commission described the incident as a crime and a campaign of eliminating trees, buildings, livestock, and sources of income. What is happening, it added, is part of a war waged by a terrorist state, Israel, that is burning green areas. The Palestinian Commission called for international protection for the Palestinian presence in Area C, calling on the international community to stop discrimination in dealing with the crimes of the Israeli occupation. And this piece is from imemc.org, which is International Middle East Media Center. The Palestinian Center for Human Rights, quote, Wide-scale demolition operation, Israeli occupation demolishes 28 homes and facilities in northern Jordan Valleys, displacing 85 Palestinians, including 45 children. On Monday morning, the 1st of February 2021, Israeli occupation forces, IOF, carried out a large-scale demolition operation against civilian properties in Hamsa al-Foka area in the northern Jordan Valley's eastern Tubas. 28 homes and facilities were demolished, displacing 85 Palestinians, including 45 children, in the operation. These demolitions are part of an accelerated campaign by IOF to demolish and destroy Palestinian homes and properties in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Under the Israeli annexation and settlement expansion schemes and what can only be considered an act of ethnic cleansing against the indigenous Palestinian population. According to PCHR's investigations, at approximately 8.45 on Monday, IOF, accompanied by Israeli Civil Administration SUVs and construction vehicles, moved into Kerbet Hemsa al-Foka in the northern Jordan Valley's eastern Tubas. Immediately, workers accompanying IOF proceeded to demolish and dismantle civilian homes and sheep barns, loaded them onto their trucks, and confiscated their contents. The demolition included 14 residential tents, 7 tents and 5 barracks for cattle, the destroyed structures belonged to 11 families, 85 civilians, including 45 children, who were rendered homeless. IOF told the affected area's residents to accompany them to be transferred to Ian Shibli area, west of Al-Hamra checkpoint in the central Jordan Valleys. However, they refused to leave the area. IOF threatened the residents that they would return the following day and expel them from Hemsa al-Foka, should be noted that on the 3rd November 2020, IOF conducted a wide-scale demolition campaign in the same area that included the demolition of 70 homes and facilities and displacing 60 Palestinians, mostly children. The Palestinian Center for Human Rights condemns the Israeli demolitions and confiscation of Palestinian properties and warns against the threat of continued Israeli attempts to displace Palestinians and oust them from their lands by destroying their houses and confiscating, demolishing 
their properties. This is an Israeli systematic policy to impose a fait accompli to enforce its control and sovereignty on parts of the West Bank. PCHR recalls that Article 49 of the Fourth Geneva Convention of 1949 prohibits, quote, individual or mass forcible transfers as well as deportations of protected persons unless the security of the population or imperative military reasons so demand. Additionally, Article 7.1d of the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court stipulates that, quote, deportation or forcible transfer of population when committed as part of a widespread or systematic attack directed against any civilian population is a crime against humanity. Also, Article 6, 7, and 8 of the Rome Statute assert that, quote, deportation or forcible transfer of population is a war crime. PCHR calls upon the international community and United Nations bodies to uphold their legal and moral duties and to urgently intervene to stop the Israeli occupation's crime against Palestinians and to guarantee their protection. And this is this is standard practice ongoing daily uh, impact that the Israeli occupation has on the Palestinian people. In addition to entering West Bank and Gaza and destroying homes of Palestinians, Israel is building homes for Jewish settlers in those regions. Next up, a piece published by Electronic Intifada.net. This is written by Maureen Claire Murphy. The International Criminal Court has opened a formal investigation into war crimes in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Chief Prosecutor Fatou Bensouda confirmed on Wednesday. Bensouda's announcement was welcomed as, quote, a historic day in the decades-long Palestinian campaign for international justice and accountability by Palestinian human rights groups leading those efforts. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who will likely be subjected to ICC scrutiny, branded the investigation as, quote, the essence of anti-Semitism. The ICC's announcement of an investigation came less than a month after a panel of judges confirmed that the court's territorial jurisdiction extends to the Palestinian territories under Israeli military occupation. In December 2019, Bensouda concluded a lengthy preliminary investigation, stating that criteria for war crimes investigations in the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip, had been met. The ICC investigation will cover crimes committed since June 2014, when the situation in Palestine was referred to the International Tribunal. Bensouda stated that her office, quote, will set priorities for the investigation. In light of the operational challenges we confront from the pandemic, the limited resources we have available to us, and our current heavy workload. She added that in situations in which the prosecutor determines a reasonable basis to investigate, the prosecutor's office, office is, quote, obliged to act. 
The court's next step will be to notify Israel and the Palestinian authorities, permitting each state party to conduct relevant investigations, quote, of its own nationals or others within its jurisdiction, in relation to crimes that fall under the ICC's mandate. The ICC defers to a country's internal investigations where they exist, under the principle of complementarity, which holds that states have the first responsibility and right to prosecute international crimes. Israel has a self-investigation system, albeit one described by Bitsalam, a leading human rights group in the country, as a whitewashing mechanism that insulates the military and political leadership from accountability. In late 2019, Bensouda stated that her office's assessment of the scope and genuineness of Israel's domestic proceedings remains ongoing at this stage. She had, however, quote, concluded that the potential cases concerning crimes allegedly committed by members of Hamas in PAGs, that is, Palestinian armed groups, would currently be admissible. In her statement on Wednesday, Ben Suda said the assessment of complementarity will remain ongoing, and she suggested that the matter may be deliberated by a panel of judges in a pretrial chamber. Given that Israel's settlement enterprise in the West Bank is unambiguously state policy, backed by its highest-ranking members of government, it will likely be a primary focus of the ICC's probe. Like the question of territorial jurisdiction, complementarity will likely be a major sticking point for the court's investigation in Palestine. Welcoming Ben Suda's announcement on Wednesday, Palestinian human rights groups urged, quote, that there be no undue delay and that the utmost urgency be brought to bear. But Ben Suda set an expectation for less than expeditious proceedings, stating that, quote, investigations take time and they must be grounded objectively in facts and law. She urged patience from, quote, Palestinian and Israeli victims and affected communities, adding that the ICC is not a panacea. Alluding to an argument made by Israel's allies that an investigation would jeopardize future bilateral negotiations, Ben Suda said that, quote, the pursuit of peace and justice should be seen as mutually reinforcing imperatives. Ben Suda said on Wednesday that the court would focus its attention on the most notorious alleged offenders or those alleged to be the most responsible for the commission of crimes. Netanyahu's election campaign promises to annex West Bank and was mentioned by Ben Suda in her request to the pretrial chamber on territorial jurisdiction. Media have reported that the Israeli government has a list of hundreds of individuals who might be investigated and prosecuted by the court, which tries individuals, not states. Israeli officials claim that some ICC member states, quote, have agreed to give advance warning to Israel of any intent to arrest its citizens upon arrival to their countries, providing tip-offs that could allow suspects to escape investigation or arrest would likely violate the obligations that member states have under the ICC's founding Rome statute to cooperate with the court's work. On Wednesday, Ben Suda said that, quote, We count on the support and cooperation of the parties, Israel and the Palestinian armed groups, as well as all states' parties to the Rome Statute. 
The ICC, however, will come under tremendous political pressure as powerful states like the U.S., Canada, and Australia oppose any investigation of their ally, Israel. Last year, Canada made a thinly veiled threat to withdraw financial support to the ICC should it proceed with an investigation. The Trump administration in Washington imposed economic sanctions and visa restrictions on Ben Suda and members of her staff. The extreme measures put the court personnel in the company of terrorists and narcotics traffickers or individuals and groups working on behalf of countries sanctioned by the U.S. While President Joe Biden has signed a flurry of executive orders, reversing measures by his predecessor, the new U.S. leader has allowed the ICC sanctions to remain in place. Amid pressure to lift the sanctions, the White House is promising only to, quote, thoroughly review them. During his first phone call with President Biden, Netanyahu urged that the sanctions remain in place. Israel has meanwhile directed its vitriol at Palestinian human rights defenders, particularly those engaged with international justice mechanisms like the ICC. Its tactics have included arbitrary arrests, travel bans, and residency revocations, as well as attacks on Palestinian human rights organizations, including raids. Balkis Jara, an associate director at Human Rights Watch, stated on Wednesday that, quote, ICC member countries should stand ready to fiercely protect the court's work from any political pressure. Jara added that all eyes will also be on the next prosecutor, Karim Khan, to pick up the baton and expeditiously move forward while demonstrating firm independence in seeking to hold even the most powerful to account. And next we have a couple pieces from MondoWeiss.net. The first one is written by Ramsey Baroud. Bitzalem's historic declaration, Israel's open war on its own civil society. Quote, A regime of Jewish supremacy from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. This is apartheid, was the title of a January 12 report by the Israeli rights group Bitzalem. No matter how one is to interpret Bitzalem's fi- findings, the report is earth-shattering. The official Israeli response merely confirmed what Bitzalem has stated in no uncertain terms. Those of us who repeatedly claimed that Israel is not democratic, governed by an apartheid regime, and systematically discriminates against its ethnic and racial minorities in favor of the country's Jewish majority, purportedly have nothing to learn from Bitzalem's declaration. Thus, it may seem that the report, which highlighted racial discrimination in four major areas, land, citizenship, freedom of movement, and political participation, merely restated the obvious. In actuality, it went much further. Bitzalem is a credible Israel human rights organization. However, like other Israeli rights groups, it rarely went far enough in challenging the Israeli Israeli state's basic definition of itself as a democratic state. Yes, on numerous occasions it rightly accused the Israeli government and military of undemocratic practices, rampant human rights violations, and so on. But to demolish the very raison d'etre, 
the basic premise that gives Israel its legitimacy in the eyes of its Jewish citizens, and many more around the world, is a whole different story. Quote, B'Tselem rejects the perception of Israel as a democracy inside the Green Line that is simultaneously upholds a temporary military occupation beyond it. The Israeli rights group concluded based on the fact that the, quote, bar for defining the Israel regime as an apartheid regime has been met after considering the accumulation of policies and laws that Israel devised to entrench its control over Palestinians. Let's be clear on what this actually means. Israel's leading human rights organization was not arguing that Israel was turning into an apartheid state, or that it was acting contrary to the spirit of democracy, or that Israel is an undemocratic apartheid regime only within the geographic confines of the occupied Palestinian territory. None of this. According to B'Tselem, which has for decades diligently documented numerous facets of Israeli government practices in the realm of politics, military, land ownership, water distribution, health, education, and much more. Israel is now wholly an apartheid, undemocratic regime. B'Tselem's assessment is most welcomed, not as a belated admission of a self-evident reality, but as an important step that could allow both Israelis and Palestinians to establish a common narrative on their relationship political position, and collective action in order to dismantle this Israeli apartheid. Relatively, Israeli groups that criticize their own government have historically been allowed much larger margins than Palestinian groups that have done the same thing. However, this is no longer the case. Palestinian freedom of speech has always been so limited and the mere criticism of the Israeli occupation has led to extreme measures, including beatings, arrests, and even assassinations. In 2002, NGO Monitor was established by the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs, an organization with close ties to the Israeli government, precisely to monitor and control Palestinian human rights organizations in the occupied territory, including Adamir, Al-Mazan, Al-Haq, PCHR, among others. The Israeli army raid on the Ramallah-based offices of the Palestinian human rights group Adamir in September 2019 was one of many such violent examples. However, Israeli government actions of recent years are pointing to an unmistakable paradigm shift where Israeli civil society organizations are increasingly perceived to be the enemy, targeted in myriad ways, including defamation, financial restrictions, and severing of access to the Israeli public. The latter point was put on full display on January 17, when Israeli Education Minister Yoav Gallant tweeted that he had instructed his ministry to, quote, prevent the entry of organizations calling Israel an apartheid state or demeaning Israeli soldiers from lecturing at schools. Oddly, Gallant demonstrated B'Tselem's point, where the group challenged Israelis' very claim 
to democracy and freedom of expression by curtailing Israeli human rights workers, intellectuals, and educators' own right to express dissent and to challenge the government's political line. Simply stated, Gallant's decision is a functional definition of totalitarianism at work. B'Tselem did not back down. To the contrary, the group expressed its determination, quote, to keep with its mission of documenting reality and making its findings publicly known to the Israeli public and worldwide. It went even further as B'Tselem director Haggai el Ad met with hundreds of Israeli students on January 18 to discuss the inconsistency between military occupation and the respect for human rights. Following the meeting, El Ad tweeted, quote, The B'Tselem lecture did take place this morning. The Israeli government will have to contend with us until the apartheid regime ends. The B'Tselem Galat episode is not an isolated spat but one out of many such examples which demonstrate that the Israeli government is turning into a police state against not only Palestinian Arabs, but its own Jewish citizens. Indeed, the decision by Israeli Minister of Education is rooted in a previous law that dates back to July 2018, which was dubbed the Breaking the Silence Law. Breaking the Silence is an Israeli civil society organization of army veterans who became vocal in their criticism of the Israeli occupation, and who have taken it upon themselves to educate the Israeli public on the immorality and illegality of Israel's military practices in occupied Palestine. To silence the soldiers, former Israeli education minister Naftali Bennett ordered schools to bar these conscientious objectors from gaining access and directly speaking to students. The latest government decision taken by Gallant has merely widened the definition, thus expanding the restrictions imposed on Israelis who refuse to toe the government line. For years, a persisting argument within the Palestinian-Israeli discourse contended that while Israel is not a perfect democracy, it is nonetheless a democracy for Jews. Though true democracies must be founded on equality and inclusiveness, the latter maxim gave some credibility to the argument that Israel can still strike the balance between being nominally democratic while remaining exclusively Jewish. That shaky argument is now falling apart, even in the eyes of many Israeli Jews. The Israeli government no longer possesses any democratic ideals. Indeed, as B'Tselem has succinctly worded it, Israel is a regime of Jewish supremacy, quote, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. And the next piece is written by Philip Weiss. When the Israeli human rights group B'Tselem pronounced on January 12 that Israel was an apartheid state, maintaining a regime of Jewish supremacy from the river to the sea, the report shocked many in the world. Yet more than a month later, the shock has died away, and nothing concrete has followed. The New York Times and other U.S. mainstream media have ignored the report. Liberal Zionist groups that have an ear in the Democratic Party have avoided the topic like the plague, because they know that apartheid means one thing, 
BDS, boycott, divestment, and sanctions, the economic pressure that pro-Israel groups call anti-Semitic. The cold shoulder for B'Tselem is nothing new. Just this year, the London Review of Books published a groundbreaking piece describing Israel as an apartheid state. Last July, the Israeli human rights group Yesh Din said Israel enforces apartheid rule in the West Bank. Last fall, a coalition of 232 civil society groups called on the UN General Assembly to, quote, launch, internal, launch international investigations into Israel's apartheid regime over the Palestinian people and end apartheid in the 21st century. And none of those reports got much traction in the U.S. All these findings are surely important in a long struggle. Quote, The mounting recognition of Israel's maintenance of an apartheid regime, Pearl al-Haq last year, but the indifference to them is also in a long tradition. Ignoring apartheid pronouncements about Israel in the U.S., the Israel lobby is simply too omnipresent an institution in our politics and media, for the allegation of apartheid to be taken very seriously. No, that's delegitimizing Israel. And it's anti-Semitic. I thought it would be a service to list many of these apartheid judgments with the aim of showing how long experts have been reaching this conclusion and how little effect they have had. So far, anyway. I begin with my own history. In 2006, I met Gosiami Choabi, a South African church official in Hebron, and he told me that he'd lived through apartheid and what he saw in Palestine from separate roads to checkpoints barring passage for Palestinians was, quote, worse than apartheid. I published his statement in the New York Observer like I had a scoop. A few months later, Jared Kushner fired me. That same year, 2006, Carter published his book, Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid, and he was slapped by the media for doing so. Carter was precise, quote, Deep within the West Bank, there has been developed a system of apartheid that in many ways is more oppressive than was the system of apartheid in South Africa. The highways are prohibited to be used by Palestinians, and in Gaza there couldn't be a worse case of apartness or apartheid anywhere in the world. Notably, radio host Terry Gross took Carter to task for the word. The title is already getting you in trouble with a lot of people, she said on Fresh Air, in what might be the worst editorial suggestion ever. Why not call it something neutral, like the never-ending Middle East crisis, what each side needs to do? So are you concerned that even though you think Israel's practices are a practice of apartness, that by using the word apartheid, you risk alienating just the people who you want to convince? Gross cited leading Democratic politicians who said Carter was wrong, and also the attorney, Alan Dershowitz. Carter responded by citing global consensus. What I wanted to do is express a fact that is almost completely avoided and not expressed in the United States, but is well known throughout the rest of the world. Several human rights groups echoed that opinion more than 10 years ago. 
In 2009, the South African Human Sciences Research Council issued a report in collaboration with members of Palestinian civil society, recognizing that Israel was in breach of the prohibition against apartheid in the OPT. That report cited many parallels between Israeli rule and South African apartheid, including illegal detention, quote, discriminatory privileges based on an ascribed ethnicity, draconian enforced ethnic segregation in all parts of life, including by confining groups to ethnic reserves and ghettos, comprehensive restrictions on individual freedoms such as movement and expression, a dual legal system based on ethno-national identity, Jewish or Palestinian, denationalization, denial of citizenship, and a special system of laws designed selectively to punish any Palestinian resistance to the system. Al-Haq has been using the term apartheid at least since that same era. The Russell Tribunal followed suit in January 2012. A slew of writers concurred, many putting the word apartheid in titles. Elan Pape, Israel and South Africa, The Many Faces of Apartheid, 2015. Virginia Tilly, Beyond Occupation, Apartheid, Colonialism and International Law in the Occupied Palestinian Territories, 2012. John Dugard and John Reynolds, Apartheid, International Law in the Occupied Palestinian Territory, in 2013 and John Quigley, Apartheid Outside Africa, The Case of Israel, 1991. Chris McGreal published a famous report in The Guardian in 2006 on the charge that, quote, the web of controls affecting every aspect of Palestinian life bears a disturbing resemblance to apartheid. Some excerpts. Comparisons between white rule in South Africa and, Israelis, and Israel's system of control over the Arab people it governs are increasingly heard. Some Jewish South Africans and Israelis who lived with apartheid, including politicians, Holocaust survivors, and men once condemned as terrorists, describe aspects of modern Israel as disturbingly reminiscent of the old South Africa. Some see the parallels in a matrix of discriminatory practices and controls and what they describe as naked greed for land seized by the fledgling Israeli state from fleeing Arabs and later from the Palestinians for the ever-expanding West Bank settlements. Quote, Apartheid was an, extensive, was an extension of the colonial project to dispossess people of their land, said the Jewish South African cabinet minister and former ANC guerrilla, Ronnie Kasriels, on a visit to Jerusalem. That is exactly what has happened in Israel and the occupied territories. The use of force and the law to take the land. That is what apartheid and Israel have in common. And that is what they have in common with the United States and our history against the native peoples as well. Even some Zionists reached the apartheid conclusion apologetically. In 2004, Jeffrey Goldberg wrote in The New Yorker that it's temporarily apartheid on the West Bank. Quote, A de facto apartheid already exists in the West Bank. Jews live under Israeli civil law, but their Arab neighbors people who live in some cases just yards away fall under a different and substantially undemocratic set of laws 
administered by the Israeli army. It is officially temporary. It is nevertheless a form of apartheid, because two different ethnic groups living in the same territory are judged by two separate sets of laws. Nine years later, Goldberg again accepted Israel, Israel's excuse. It was, quote, provisional apartheid. Others have been more honest. Charney Bromberg, a liberal Zionist, said the apartheid conclusion was inescapable at an appearance in 2010 at Columbia University. Quote, Something has happened that is a serious affront to the idea of a good Israel that I believed in when I first started this work some 35 years ago. I'm very leery of the word apartheid. Israel was not created as a racist state. I do not believe Israel is a racist state. But cross the green line and you will see so many of the accoutrements that the South Africans placed to control their, what they believed to be, their hostile population. Roads for whites only. Roads controlled at every pass. Roads controlled by fences and guards. Stephen Robert, a liberal Zionist and former chancellor of Brown University, was more emphatic a year later, writing in The Nation, that Israel practiced apartheid on steroids. What I witnessed in the West Bank, home to about 2.5 million Palestinians and 400,000 Israeli settlers, exceeded my worst expectations. While the world statesmen have dithered, Israel has created a system of apartheid on steroids, a horrifying prison with concrete walls as high as 26 feet, topped with body-ravaging coils of razor wire. Spaced along these walls are imposing guard towers that harbor bunkers from which trespassers can be shot by Israeli soldiers. From this physical segregation, one land for Israelis, another unequal land for Palestinians, flows a torrent of misery, violence, and human rights abuses. Many believe there is an international campaign to delegitimize the Jewish state. At this point, Israel is delegitimizing itself. Henry Siegman, former liberal Zionist, also published his apartheid conclusion in The Nation in 2010. Israel had pursued the settlement project in the West Bank, quote, in order to preclude the possibility of a two-state solution. As a result of that, quote, achievement, Israel has crossed the threshold from the only democracy in the Middle East to the only apartheid regime in the Western world. Well, that's enough background. People have been saying apartheid for a long time. Though something seems to have shifted in the last year. Last summer, Al-Haq said there was a, quote, unprecedented recognition of Israel's apartheid regime, and the Israeli human rights group Yesh Din said it was apartheid in the West Bank based on an inquiry by human rights lawyer Michael Sfard. Quote, the conclusion of this legal opinion is that the crime against humanity of apartheid is being committed in the West Bank. The perpetrators are Israelis and the victims are Palestinians. Then last fall, those 232 civil society organizations called for a UN investigation of Israeli apartheid, and last month, Al-Haq welcomed B'Tselem and its ability to mainstream the charge. Quote, 
The recognition of apartheid by B'Tselem, the leading Israeli human rights organization, is an important step in the mainstreaming of the legal analysis of apartheid over the Palestinian people as a whole, whether they live within or beyond the Green Line, or living as refugees and exiles abroad, and for the struggle for human rights and an end to racial discrimination, said Shawan Jabarin, General Director of Al Haq. Being an optimist, I believe that this is an important moment. The drumbeat has gained urgency in the last few months and will continue to build because the two-state solution is so obviously dead and, as Richard Falk told Andalu Agency, superseded by, quote, a Jewish exclusivist state on the entire promised land and by 2018's basic law that asserted that only the Jewish people had a right to self-determination within the state of Israel. So the Jewish state is delegitimizing its own ideology, and the apartheid reports are the world taking notice. Someday, the U.S. will get the news. So what happens in the U.S. when you recognize all of this? Well, that's when the international Israel lobby gets to work. Here's another piece from Mondo Weiss, this one written by Michael Aria. The Democratic Majority for Israel, DMFI, has endorsed Chantel Brown in Ohio's 11th District Congressional race. This week, they sent an email out to their supporters attacking candidate Nina Turner for being a critic of Israel. Quote, The stakes in this race are high, reads the email. One of Brown's opponents, Nina Turner, has been labeled fully anti-Zionist by her allies and refuses to join some 95% of House Democrats in condemning the BDS movement whose founders believe Israel should not exist in any borders. Turner also recently endorsed placing new conditions on U.S. aid to Israel, an idea Joe Biden labeled terrible and outrageous. She was also a leader of the unsuccessful effort to move the Democratic Party platform in an anti-Israel direction. What's more, Turner literally compared voting for President Joe Biden to eating Half a bowl of shit, the email also points out. And I think I think if Turner said anything like that, she really was underselling it. Voting for Joe Biden was like eating a whole bowl of shit. DMFI was established by Democratic Party incisors and APAC alumni in 2019 for the expressed purpose of stomping out growing pro-Palestine sentiment within the party. Quote, most Democrats are strongly pro-Israel, and we want to keep it that way. DMFI President Mark Melman told the New York Times back then, there are a few discordant voices, but we want to make sure that what's a very small problem doesn't metastasize into a bigger problem. Despite Melman's assertion that there are numerous polls showing that a majority of Democratic voters support conditioning aid to Israel over its human rights abuses, 
There's even recent polling that shows the BDS movement is becoming more popular among Democrats, despite almost universal opposition from elected officials. Representative Marsha Fudge has served Ohio's 11th district since 2008, but she's expected to be confirmed as the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development soon. There are currently five candidates running for the seat, and Turner has an early fundraising lead. Turner is a former Cleveland City Councilwoman and an Ohio State Senator who rose to prominence in recent years as a result of co-chairing Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. DMFI ran ads attacking Sanders during the primary and tried to take credit for the Vermont senator ultimately dropping out of the race. Turner supports conditioning aid to Israel and, although she hasn't come out in support of the BDS movement, she also has not condemned it. Quote, From a foundational perspective, it's just a free speech issue for me, she told Jewish Insider recently. I haven't taken it any further than that. In contrast to Turner, Brown opposes conditioning aid and claims that the BDS movement, quote, uses anti-Semitic rhetoric. In 2018, she toured Israel with an APAC-connected group. It gives you a much greater and tangible and realistic appreciation for the vulnerability of this state, she told Jewish Insider. Admittedly, I was eager to go see the holy sites, Brown added, but really kind of got equally enamored by the energy and the bustling democracy that was on display before me. It was really a sight to see. The election is expected to take place in May, depending on the date of Fudge's confirmation. And that is a very important election, and Nina Turner is a formidable and outstanding candidate. If you listen to Nina Turner, um, or if you agree with what Bernie stands for, or Ilhan Omar, or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or Mondaire Jones, Nina Turner is much in those lines. Next up, a piece from HuffPost.com. This written by Akbar Shahid Ahmed. Key Jewish groups ask Joe Biden to revoke Trump's parting gift for Israel's Netanyahu. A coalition of influential Jewish American groups seeking peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians wants the President Joe Biden to revoke a planned Trump administration policy that treats occupied territory crucial to a future Palestinian state as already part of Israel. In a letter sent to Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas on Tuesday and shared exclusively with HuffPost, the six groups warned the Biden administration against the looming change, which they said would worsen tensions in Middle East if allowed to go into effect. Weeks before Trump left office, he directed the Department of Homeland Security to adopt new labels for products made in the section of the West Bank that is under full control of Israel. That segment, known as Area C, forms the majority of the disputed region and hosts Israeli settlements widely viewed as violating international law. The agency is currently set to enforce a March 23 deadline for companies to tag products from the area with language along the lines of made in Israel, including goods made by Palestinians. It is a powerful symbolic move. The Palestinian Authority, the most powerful governing body among the Palestinians, 
called Trump's action a war crime at the time of the announcement. Advocates for a fair settlement between the Israelis and Palestinians view Trump's suggested label as a U.S. endorsement of Israel's often brutal rule over occupied land, including policies like expanding settlements and demolishing Palestinian homes. The groups that signed the letter were J Street, the New Israel Fund, Partners for Progressive Israel, Amienu, Americans for Peace Now, and Teruah, the rabbinic call for human rights. Biden's decision could represent one of his first major stabs at tackling the long-running Middle East crisis, and he could use the choice to demonstrate that he will be even more even-handed in his approach to the two sides, a priority for progressives who say that both Donald Trump and previous Democratic presidents favored Israel over encouraging a solution to the dispute and associated human rights abuses. The six organizations told Mayorkas the shift in labels should not go into effect. Quote, By inaccurately and misleadingly treating settlement and other products from Area C of the West Bank as if they were made in Israel, the Trump-era notification attempts to reverse decades of U.S. policy that makes a firm distinction between Israel and the West Bank, reads their message. It runs counter to the Biden administration's policy of opposing settlement activity and unilateral annexation of territory as harmful to the prospects for the peaceful, just resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Under the U.S.-brokered Oslo Accords of the 1990s, Area C, which comprises 60% of the West Bank, is run by Israel while the smaller areas A and B are under limited Palestinian self-governance. President Bill Clinton first introduced labels for imports that specified they were made in the Palestinian territories of Gaza and the West Bank as he diplomatically sought to end the Israeli-Palestinian dispute. Trump's change of course could solidify the status quo and weaken the impetus for peace talks, critics warn. Negotiations between the two communities largely stalled in 2014. The Trump labeling change could also bolster the sense among hardliners, like Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, that it is time for Israel to begin treating occupied territories as part of its formal territory, a hugely controversial process known as annexation. Netanyahu publicly spoke of annexing part of Area C and other territory in the West Bank under Trump, who crafted a so-called peace plan, granting Israel parts of the region, but has held back for now. Many national security experts and left-leaning activists say annexation will create a huge backlash within Israel-Palestine and globally and create a dangerously unstable situation. The Six Group's letter calls the label move, quote, harmful to essential interests of Israelis and Palestinians alike. It notes that Trump's policy would slap the Israel label on products made by the estimated 300,000 Palestinians who live in Area C. Additionally, the ex-president's directive says products marked as being from the West Bank must explicitly make no mention of Gaza. Defying advice from the Palestinian leadership and past American administrations to treat the two components of a future Palestine as fundamentally connected. The European Union requires companies to specify goods that are produced in Israeli settlements and does not permit them to use the Made in Israel tag. 
Biden could choose to revoke Trump's rule or simply decline to enforce it. Organizations working on the Israeli-Palestine conflict see the label question as a key early test for the new president. Quote, The upcoming implementation deadline for this requirement provides the Biden administration with an important opportunity to make absolutely clear that the United States does not consider Israeli settlements located in occupied Palestinian territory to be part of Israel, Jeremy Ben-Ami, J Street's president, told HuffPost. Biden is treading cautiously on the issue so far, saying he will not reverse dramatic Trump shifts, such as moving the U.S. Embassy in Israel to Jerusalem, but also suggesting he shares many Democrats' wariness of Netanyahu by waiting weeks into his presidency to make the traditional first call to the Israeli leader. But Trump's flurry of activity to aid Netanyahu and court pro-Israel voters in the U.S., leaves the new administration with a range of policies that many on the left see as extremely problematic. The label move was the final part of his pattern of one-sided gifts for Israel, without similar outreach or support to the Palestinians, whom he instead cut off from U.S. aid. Congressional Republicans asked Trump to enact the policy after Biden's November election victory, continuing their pattern of misleadingly suggesting Democrats want to hurt Israel and Jews and support the international efforts to boycott products from the settlements and Israel itself. Liberals concerned with Israeli-Palestinian policy say Biden should resist such narratives by offering his own clear approach. In criticizing Israeli demolitions earlier in February, J Street issued a statement suggesting Biden has little time to waste as creeping annexation continues. Quote, At a time when the Israeli government's disinterest in serious negotiations with the Palestinians towards two states has never been more evident, the new Biden administration should act swiftly and decisively to change this paradigm and establish a new norm, the organization said. It's it's uh, it's a hopeful position to take, and and one that many people took in the election when Biden was running against Trump. Trump was uniquely horrible in many many ways. Biden is horrible in his own ways, and too many people believe they could elect Biden and then push Biden to the left and that that would be a successful strategy. And I understand the options were extraordinarily slim, but those people who really believed that they could turn Biden into something that has not been demonstrated by his past and his history, Biden has been in government for decades as a senator and as vice president, literally for decades. He has an enormous history of positions. And to be surprised by what he is doing now and what he's supporting and what he's not supporting means you haven't been paying attention. And this next piece points that out. This piece is by Josh Rubner. Biden officials pledge to fight BDS. This is published at electronicintifada.net. The Biden administration, quote, 
embraces and champions the so-called IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, a State Department official said on Monday. Carr McDonald, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights and Labor, praised the definition, quote, with its real-world examples as an invaluable tool to call hate by its proper name and take effective action, according to the JTA News Agency. McDonald is serving temporarily as the Biden administration's point person on the issue until it names a special envoy on anti-Semitism. The IHRA definition has been promoted by Israel and its lobby groups. It has been strongly opposed by civil libertarians and Palestinian and Jewish organizations, which see it as a pretext to smear and censor supporters of Palestinian rights. Its use as a tool of censorship has even been criticized by the definition's original author. This is because some of the definition's accompanying examples equate legitimate criticisms of Israeli government policies and actions with anti-Jewish bigotry. For example, deeming Israel a racist endeavor as the Israeli human rights organization B'Tselem did when it characterized Israel as a regime of Jewish supremacy that practices apartheid would qualify as anti-Semitism under the definition. Another of the IHRA's examples of anti-Semitism includes applying double standards towards Israel, quote, by requiring of it a behavior not expected or demanded of any other democratic nation. Under this example, any campaign utilizing the tactics of boycott, divestment, or sanctions, BDS, to advocate for Palestinian rights could be deemed anti-Semitic unless campaigners simultaneously devoted equal attention and vigor to addressing human rights abuses in other countries. McDonald's statement is another worrying indicator that the Biden administration will be hostile to speech and action supportive of Palestinian rights. Several Biden administration nominees have also expressed truculent and even vitriolic opposition to BDS in their Senate confirmation hearings. At his 19 January hearing, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said he and President Biden resolutely opposed BDS. Echoing the IHRA example, Blinken claimed that the Palestinian-led BDS movement, quote, unfairly and inappropriately singles out Israel and creates a double standard that we do not apply to other countries. He is quoting the IHRA definition, or at least he's paraphrasing it. Based on this absurd standard, Palestinians themselves cannot advocate for their own rights in their own homeland without being accused of anti-Semitism unless they simultaneously wage campaigns about other countries. However, Blinken also stated, quote, We fully respect and will always respect First Amendment rights of Americans to say what they believe and think, but BDS itself is something we oppose. In her 27 January confirmation hearing, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, President Biden's nominee for U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, issued a full-throated denunciation of BDS, quote, I find the actions and the approach that BDS has taken towards Israel unacceptable, Thompson Greenfield stated. It verges on anti-Semitism. 
and it is important that they not be allowed to have a voice at the United Nations. I intend to work very strongly against that. Blinken's and Thomas Greenfield's drawing of parallels between BDS and the IHRA's examples of anti-Semitism are disturbing. But perhaps the most troubling position towards BDS was spelled out by Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen in a written response to questions posed by senators in advance of her confirmation hearing. Senator Mike Crapo, a Republican from Idaho, noted correctly that for, quote, more than 40 years, the Treasury Department has played a key role in fighting international efforts to boycott Israel. He then asked Yellen, if confirmed, are you committed to fighting efforts to boycott, divest, or sanction our ally Israel? Yellen responded that Biden has, quote, led efforts to oppose the delegitimization of Israel, whether in international organizations or by the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement in the United States. I support President Biden's approach, she added, affirming that she would, quote, work as Treasury Secretary to oppose BDS activities directed at Israel. Yellen's well-considered written response was not off the cuff and should set off alarm bells. The Treasury Department issues guidelines that inform the work of the Commerce Department's Office of Anti-Boycott Compliance, OAC, which slaps fines on U.S. companies participating in the Arab League boycott of Israel. The law which led to the creation of the OAC, the Export Administration Act of 1979, was passed decades before the advent of the Palestinian Civil Society-led BDS movement in 2005. Senator Ben Cardin, a Democrat from Maryland, attempted to amend the law through the 2017 Israel Anti-Boycott Act to impose fines and a prison sentence of up to 20 years against individuals who support or further an international organization's call to boycott a company complicit in Israel's human rights abuses. The bill was defeated through a combined outcry and lobbying campaign from Palestinian solidarity activists and the American Civil Liberties Union. Yellen's pledge to oppose BDS activities directed at Israel goes well beyond her duty to issue guidelines to enforce current prohibitions against compliance with the Arab League boycott. Instead, it raises the specter of her support for future legislation to crack down on civil society initiatives to boycott companies and institutions complicit in violations of Palestinian rights. Yellen's response not only potentially contradicts Blinken's testimony, but also the 2020 platform of the Democratic Party, which opposes BDS efforts at the UN, quote, while protecting the constitutional right of our citizens to free speech. These developments suggest that Biden's rhetorical opposition to BDS and the struggle for Palestinian rights, more broadly, will be similar to the Trump and Obama administration's opposition to the movement, with the important caveat of recognizing the constitutionality of boycotting for Palestinian rights. In its first two weeks, the Biden administration has commendably issued a flurry of executive orders on immigration reform, climate change, and racial justice, and has suspended weapons sales to human rights abusing regimes such as Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. However, it has struck a woefully discordant tune to these otherwise positive steps by equating legitimate criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism, 
and going out of its way to denounce and potentially act against people engaged in civil society action to support Palestinian rights. So, what are we to do with a government that has long been hostile to holding Israel to account for its apartheid system? Much like in the 80s, we had a government that was uh, staunchly opposed to holding South Africa to account for its apartheid system. It is up to the people. It is up to us to find ways to call attention to and impact those conditions so that Palestinians can live freely on their lands and at peace with their neighbors. One of the few tools that we ordinary citizens have is the boycott, divest, divestment, and sanctions movement. And I think it is a, a worthy movement to put pressure where we can to make real change. It is not our only tool. There are many, many tools, many ways to protest within the system by legal means and outside of the system. This next piece is by Palestine Action is published at mondoweiss.net. The following press release was issued on February 2, 2021 by Palestine Action. Mondo Weiss occasionally publishes press releases and statements from organizations in an effort to draw attention to overlooked issues. Eight activists from Extinction Rebellion North and Palestine Action were arrested yesterday after causing 20,000 pounds worth of damage after shutting down an Israeli arms factory in Oldham, UK. The activists stormed the factory in the early hours of Monday morning, February 1, with six blockading three entrances and another two climbing onto the roof. The Ferrante Technologies plant, owned by Israel's largest arms firm, Elbit Systems, was left emblazoned with red paint, smashed windows, and missing its Cairo House sign. The action received widespread support, including from Pink Floyd co-founder Roger Waters and the National Extinction Rebellion group. During the 16-hour occupation of the factory, police officers prevented legal observers from being at the scene by using COVID-19 regulations to threaten them with fines and arrest if they did not move on. The two on the roof were the last to hold the factory after refusing police requests to come down from their rooftop siege. The pair, draped in Palestinian flags, shouted, Free Palestine, as they were brought down and arrested at around 6 p.m., 16 hours after the factory was seized and the production of weapons halted. In the wake of the protest, Palestine Action Facebook page was taken down on Tuesday, February 1, under the pretext that the group, quote, goes against our community standards. Palestine Action has accused Facebook of discriminatory targeting Palestine human rights activism, given that its only posts on Monday 
were those sharing live stream videos from XR North's page, which has not been affected. And this is one of the under-reported uh, impacts of major corporations owning so much of the social media space, um, Twitter and Facebook and Google um, controlling so much of that space is that Palestinian voices and anti-Israel apartheid voices get either sidelined by algorithms or shut down. Um, they get they get their their sites uh, canceled and their access canceled um, to not be able to put forth their message. The eight activists continue to be held in custody. The factory siege was the first collaboration between Extinction Rebellion and Palestine Action. The two direct action groups have vowed to escalate their actions until Elbit Systems is shut down for good and all systemic injustice ends. Commenting on the Oldham factory blockade and Facebook's censorship of Palestinian human rights activism, a member of Palestine Action said, quote, Yesterday's action was a huge success and demonstrates the strength in building alliances across movements, especially when humanity and the world we live in face the biggest challenges to its existence. This is only the beginning of such an action, and we will honor our commitment to continue to escalate with XR and shut Elbit down for good. Facebook has routinely censored our posts, saying that we promote harm, when in fact we promote direct action against an arms company, which is guilty of extreme violence through testing its weapons on Palestinian children and then exporting them to other oppressive regimes around the world. Facebook will not succeed in silencing us, nor stop our vital work to stop Elbit. Speaking from the roof yesterday, Extinction Rebellion North activists spoke out against Elbit's production of illegal weapons, the role of its surveillance drones against refugees, and the sinister simulation technologies produced at the Oldham factory, which teaches pilots how to bomb targets by using simulations from the Israeli military shelling of Gaza. He said, quote, This isn't just about the West Bank. This isn't just about Gaza. This is about all of the innocent lives and all of the innocent civilians who have been killed by the company that runs this building. So we're here as part of a collaboration between those two groups, recognizing that we need to work together as a direct action movement in order to fight for social change and social justice, and that includes fighting the system that allows both fossil fuels and arms companies to exist. Elbit Systems UK has established an extensive presence in the UK over the last 16 years, opening 10 sites in England and Wales, including four weapons factories. Ferranti Technologies in Oldham was bought by Elbit Systems in 2007 for £15 million. Weapons parts produced by Elbit Ferranti include intelligence gathering systems for drones. Palestine Action aims to shut down Elbit's UK operation and has hit the firm's sites and those of their landlord, LaSalle Investment Management, around 40 times since launching in August 2020. 
These actions include shutting down UAV engines in Shenstone on three occasions, the most notorious of which allegedly cost the company 145,000 pounds, and a series of occupations and public protests at Elbit's London headquarters. Extinction Rebellion is an international apolitical network using nonviolent direct action to persuade governments to act justly on the climate and ecological emergency. Extinction Rebellion North's overall mission is to mobilize 3.5% of the population to achieve system change. The group connects and builds resilient communities by working and supporting one another across the region, aiming to create a world that is fit for generations to come. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can check out all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. And you can listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at MovingTrainRadio.com. Here is David Rovix with the song the Anti-Israel Boycott Act. Thanks for listening. There is a small country with very deep pockets and a collection of hundreds of nuclear rockets. A country that's run by a system of laws that has children in prison without any cause. Where a minority rules an occupied nation that lives and dies in subjugation an apartheid state if there ever was one since 48 when the settlers won and there is a big country that's ruled by the dollar where those who have money hold the dog by the collar APAC speaks senators jump from those among them who are lovers of Trump to the liberal in Portland, Seattle, D.C. White men Cantwell and Ted Cruz agree that the harshest of means are justified by the ends whenever it comes to our Zionist friends. So APAC proposed, Ted White concurred to talk of a boycott is completely absurd and must be opposed by a very big fine and two decades in prison if you step out of line. So if this law passes, this law against speech, you might be prepared for a spectacular breach. Though no one would have the least bit to gain and a whole lot to lose if you were to sing this refrain. If you support the boycott of Israel, if you support the boycott of Israel. Such a short chorus, not easy to sing when you think consequences it could bring. It's a dangerous time to say what you think, to express an opinion, to mix paper with ink. You're anti-Semitic will be the line of attack if you dare to support those who fight back. And if that's not enough to keep you out of the fray, they could find you a million for daring to say if you support the boycott of Israel. If you support the boycott of Israel.
whether you support a boycott or not. Perhaps we can agree on the situation we've got. A country of settlers and occupied land. Senators under APAC's command. Who talk about rights, who talk about justice, who position themselves like they lead a resistance. Who think that democracy and free speech is fine as long as we never Cross this line if you support the boycott of Israel. If you support the boycott of Israel. If you support the boycott of Israel.